This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 21. The Headless Men of the Nahani River Valley. Nestled at the southern foot of the Mackenzie Mountain Range in Canada's Northwest Territories, sits one of the most remote, awe-inspiring, and notorious pieces of Canadian wilderness that human beings have ever walked upon. An unimaginable assortment of natural wonders, from mile-wide sinkholes and at least 12 200-plus-foot-high geysers, to acres and acres of hot springs, and a mammoth waterfall at nearly double the height of the famed Niagara Falls. The valley lies on either side of the Nahani River that snakes down through the towering peaks to the north. But this vast and to this day mostly unexplored territory is shrouded in more than dense fog and heavy treetop canopy. The valley has become the focal point of wild rumor and ancient legend, stubborn superstition and morbid curiosity, a place with a past so intimidating that only a brave or greedy few have ever ventured to explore the depths of the Nahani Valley. At the turn of the 20th century, the bulk of northern Canada was a largely uncharted stretch of unforgiving wilderness. That was not a status quo that a specific group of North American settlers were willing to sustain. Prospectors set out by the thousands to find adventure, a little fame, and above all, fortune. They set out on foot and on water, determined to scour the towering mountains and glacial tributaries from the west coast to north-central Canada for one resource. The one commodity that would become synonymous with the settling of the North American West. Gold. Of all the gorgeous and picturesque landscapes that this region had to offer, there was one in particular that the native peoples consistently advised prospectors against. It was a specific stretch of the South Nahani River, For those foolhardy enough to ignore their counsel, and impatient enough to brave the waterways themselves, the reliability of this advice became immediately apparent as a section of the river known as the Splits first came into view. Rapids the likes of which these men had never encountered crashed and flowed at unmanageable speed. With the speed of the current, it was virtually impossible to maneuver around sandbars and log jams. Survival was entirely dependent on the quality of equipment, the bravery of the paddlers, and pure dumb luck. But for those who were fortunate enough to survive the perils of the river, beyond it lay Nahani Valley, a densely fog-covered subarctic vale that rumor had it was brimming with gold. Trouble was, the tribesmen of the region were nowhere near as concerned with the raging river passage as they were with the evil that they believed permeated the valley itself. 
See generations before Western prospectors would brave the wilds of the Northwest Territories. It was home for the First Nations people, known collectively as the Dene. Despite the fact that the Dene lived in scattered groups throughout the region, this area was almost wholly avoided. Their legends speak of an extremely violent tribe that lived throughout the Nahani Valley, known as the Naha. They would regularly perform night raids on the Dene camps, murdering men, women, and children without prejudice. Some versions of this legend even describe the Naha as cannibalizing their victims, going so far as to describe their particular preference for the flesh of newborn babies. After two decades of these attacks from their mountain-dwelling enemies, the Dene were determined to retaliate. They traveled silently through the night and rushed into a Naha settlement at sunrise. They were surprised to find that the settlement was entirely deserted, fires still burning outside the teepees, weapons and clothing still packed near bedrolls, not a single member of the Naha tribe in sight. While the disappearance of the Naha was obviously a relief to the Dene, they reported a terrible feeling that hung in the air of the settlement, what they referred to as bad medicine. From that day forward, the Naha were never seen again. It would be generations before people would begin venturing into the valley en masse again. The occasional hunter who did brave the region would come back with terrifying accounts of strangeness, if they were lucky enough to return at all. And these tales nearly cover the gambit of Fortean phenomenon. The most common reports described an eerie wailing that echoed through the valley at night, along with the sighting of giant hair-covered cave-dwelling humanoids, enormous wolves with a taste for human flesh, and even reports of prehistoric mastodons. One hunting party returned to civilization with a massive set of tusks, with the blood and fur still clinging to one end. Most of these legends were taken very seriously among the western settlers as they arrived in northern Canada. Trips into the Nahani Valley remained few and far between, that is until the end of the 19th century when a massive gold strike occurred in the Klondike region of the Yukon, just west of our vicious valley. 100,000 settlers rushed into the region, and those who were not lucky enough to strike it rich began to diffuse out into the surrounding areas. This obsession with the acquisition of gold easily trumped the horrifying history of the valley, and prospectors began exploring the region like never before. The McLeod family were one such group of failed stampeders. After striking out in the Yukon, they set up shop in Fort Laird, just south of Nahani Valley. The four sons of Murdoch, an Irish immigrant, and Anjige, a native Dene woman, grew up hearing the legends of the land, but were made brazen by the impressive outdoor skills acquired by their Dene relatives. The boys soon set their sights on making their way northward into the treacherous river valley. The oldest of the boys, Fred McLeod, eventually took over his father's post at Fort Laird. Over the course of three years, from 1900 to 1903, he encountered as many indigenous men who would pay for their merchandise with pouches of hefty-sized gold nuggets. On each of these occasions, Fred did his best to get information about where these had been acquired. It was not strange for a prospector to keep their strike spot a secret. He knew it was a long shot, but he thought it was worth a try all the same. Finally, on the third occasion, Fred laid it on thick. He offered the weary traveler a hot cup of tea and a pipe of tobacco. They sat down together, and after a long chat, he found out that the native prospector, 
had struck gold at a small waterway almost dead center in Nahani Valley, Bennett Creek. With that, he was off. He immediately sent letters to each of his older brothers, Willie and Frank, and the three brothers left their lives behind to strike out into the heart of the Canadian wilderness. Over the next three years, the brothers made two separate trips into Nahani Valley without incident. The first trip yielded very little, most of which they wasted buying drinks and partying in their first week home. On the second trip, however, they located the creek that Fred had heard about back in 1903, and with it they found a true gold strike. After spending the winter gathering pan after pan of gold nuggets, they found themselves low on supplies and knew they had to make the trip back down the mountain. In a rush to make it back to civilization, they decided to cut their time in half and travel the river. This would prove to be a disastrous mistake. While attempting to navigate an especially brutal stretch of the river named the Cascade of the Thirteen Steps, their makeshift raft capsized and they lost everything. Their gear, what was left of their rations, and all but a small bottle of gold flakes that Willie had tucked away in his waistband. Devastated by the loss of their haul, the brothers would spend the next two years saving money so that they could return. In spring of 1905, they met an Irish steamboat engineer named Robert Weir. He offered to bankroll the expedition, if he could come along. They happily agreed, and Willie, Frank, and Robert made their way back into the Mackenzie Mountains. They were determined that this would be the trip to finally make them rich. They could not have been more wrong. Season after season went by as Fred and the rest of the McLeod family awaited their return. One year after their departure, Fred made an attempt at a rescue mission, but they were thwarted by an early freeze and unexpected snowfall. Another year went by without any sign of them, until an early fall in 1907, when the canoe used by the team was discovered stuck in a log jam. While some would have taken this as confirmation of their deaths, Fred was determined to know the truth. After yet another year of saving for a total of three years since they initially headed into the valley, Fred led a serious party of seven outdoorsmen, including a member of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, up to the mountains to find his brothers. Following signs of previous travel up the Nahani River, they eventually came across a dog sled runner leaned against a tree near the banks. On the runner, written in thick pencil, was the message, We have found a fine prospect. Fred instantly recognized the handwriting to be that of his brother, Frank. Fred was elated. He took this as a sign that his brothers were still somewhere nearby. Maybe they had stayed on mountains so long because of the sheer volume of their gold strike. But when the search party scoured the area, no other sign was found, and they continued upriver. Three hours further north, they came upon a man-made clearing just off the river. At its center sat a camp that had obviously been abandoned long ago. Next to what used to be a campfire, two decayed wool blankets shrouded the skeletons of two men. Fred instantly recognized the tattered clothing and a gold ring. They were his brothers, Willie and Frank. This was, of course, a devastating discovery, but what truly shocked Fred and several other members of this veteran search party was the fact that both bodies had been decapitated. The search party set up camp and spent the next six days searching the area. While they found supplies, weapons, and a substantial amount of recently panned gold, 
Neither Skull nor their patron, Robert Weir, were anywhere to be found. Fred buried what was left of his brothers and headed down the mountain, swearing never to return to Nahani Valley. From that day forward, locals began referring to this as Dead Man Valley and Headless Creek. Unfortunately, the horror story of Willie and Frank McLeod's deaths did not ward off future prospectors, as one might imagine. In fact, it had the opposite effect. Prospectors had come to Canada's frozen north to find gold, and all they seemed to hear in this terrifying tale was that gold could be found there on the banks of Headless Creek in Dead Man Valley. One of those men, inspired by the rich finds of the McLeod brothers, was Swedish national Martin Jorgensen. In 1910, the noted skeptic took a loan of equipment from a local merchant who had been in the McLeod rescue party, Pool Fields, and headed upriver into Nahani Valley. Three years passed, and Fields assumed that Jorgensen had failed or died when a letter arrived. The letter from Jorgensen to his ex-wife and current wife of Fields included a map to his camp and a message asking for a group of men to assist him with transporting his gold down the mountain. Fields and a small party set off in 1914 and followed the map into Nahani Valley. What they found was not a mountain of gold to bring home. Instead, they found a cabin that had burnt to the ground some time ago, and between the cabin and the creek, the body of Martin Jorgensen, lying next to a bucket and a rifle surrounded by spent shell casings. The partially decomposed body lay sprawled across the snow, and like the McLeod brothers before him, he had been completely decapitated. Jorgensen's head was never found. While many blamed the death and decapitation of the McLeods on their missing companion, this new development created a pattern that cemented the legend of Nahani Valley. Word spread far and wide that anyone who wanted gold from the valley would pay for it with their heads. While this certainly slowed the amount of traffic in the area, over the next two decades, Nahani Valley would be the backdrop for more than 100 missing persons reports. And in 1930, a trapper named Phil Powers attempted to circumvent the curse by seeking the second most precious resource in the valley, furs. He set up dozens of traps throughout the valley and built a small cabin planning on spending a few seasons collecting. When he didn't return on the time schedule that he had given his fiancée, she convinced a group of Royal Northwest Mounted Police to go in after him. Their guide was none other than local merchant and now veteran rescue party leader Poole Fields. They headed into the area that Powers had planned on camping in and found a very familiar scene. A burnt-out cabin and the headless remains of Phil Powers. Remarkably, the blaze had burnt at such an intense heat that they recovered porcelain dishes from inside that had fused together. Yet none of the surrounding forest appeared to even be scorched. Next to an untouched pile of furs some 30 yards from the remains of the cabin lay a dog sled runner with a message scrawled in thick pencil. Phil Powers, his finish, August 1932. While it was obvious to the police present that Powers had died at least a year before, this message was dated just one month before its discovery. Now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, much of the 11,000-square-mile Nahani National Park is now closed off to visitors. Officially, this is because of the protection needed for sensitive ecosystems and the cultural significance that the land holds for the indigenous Dene people. 
although many believe that this is just as much about protecting the land from people as it is about protecting people from the evil within. Throughout the remainder of the 20th century, explorers, hunters, and miners would vanish without a trace in this region at an alarming rate. Starting in the 1950s, a series of mysterious plane crashes, unexplainable weather phenomenon, and UFO sightings were accompanied by reports of Amphicinidae, a predatory bear-dog hybrid that went extinct in the Pliocene period, prowling the valley, and numerous reported encounters with Sasquatch in the restricted areas of the park. The decapitations and murders of numerous people were all confirmed by police record, and however dismissive, they were attributed to either the greed and rivalry so common in the Gold Rush era, or the brutal and treacherous reality of the isolated wilderness. Since there is no way of knowing what truly took the lives and heads of so many in Nahani Valley, what we can say is that the sacred mythological nature of this area holds a place of significance and reverence in the collective Canadian psyche to this day. These remarkable and unexplainable events that help to build the legend will forever serve as an allegory for the horrifying void that is the unexplored, and the lore surrounding this region has cemented Nahani Valley in the list of the most bizarre and unpredictable locations on Earth. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. All right, so I think what my takeaway here is to never go to the Nahani Valley. Yeah, I think that's Um, a solid plan. (laughs) Unless I want to lose my head. Um, But, no, I mean, it sounds uh, sounds like... So the first group of people... Uh, let me go back through my notes because I I got a lot of notes here. So the Cloud Brothers, yeah. So the first the first group of people that went and then weren't successful basically the first time around, but the second time around, like ended up getting you know basically getting getting a good amount. Yeah. Um, and then, then they capsized. Right. And so and then after that, there was basically like a third part or third group that went but fred i believe was the one of the brothers not frank or, yeah. or, or willie or whoever no so fred stayed fred back stayed back one. okay yep so frank willie uh whoever else went and robert weir was and the robert was the, the trip the boatman right yeah yep so they ended up basically just taking the actual river down yeah and so but after that obviously some shit went down yeah so my, I guess my question is, you know, when they, when they originally went and didn't find anything or even the second time where they, you know, found, found gold and everything, I wonder why there was nothing that actually happened during that time. That's a good question. I mean, some would say that maybe they just got really lucky. Maybe. Uh, I maybe. don't know. Yeah. But the first two trips were without incident. They didn't encounter any of the like crazy legends that right, they had always of course. heard. Yeah. Other than the, you know, the bad luck of capsizing on the way home, I guess you yeah. could construe that and as you said one of them basically had just what was left in his like pouch that he had snuck basically. Yeah. He had like a little, a little glass bottle of, of gold flakes that he had tucked into his waistband. And I believe that was, was that the one you said was basically enough for them to like party the next week and that was it? 
No, that was the first. Trip. That was the first one. They, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. They. Yeah. It's getting they my got timing just enough here for to, sure. Yeah, I know. There's a lot. So the first trip, they got just enough gold to like party for a week or two, and they also made Fred a uh, a gold watch chain. They had a gold watch chain made for him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's. That was, I, mean, that's I feel like that's a pretty significant amount. Yeah. Like if they can party for a good week or two and you know make a watch chain like all of that like that's pretty decent. You know, not yeah. bad. I mean it was enough that they wanted to go back. Right. Obviously, like the tribesmen or the people there being able to pay and like gold nuggets and everything, like you know, I mean that's I, that's where a lot of this kind of comes comes to question. You know, did the the people that actually lived there did they know about these things? Was it something they didn't want to tell people about just because they knew that something was going to happen and they didn't want people to kind of like take their gold? See, that's um, that's a that's a question, but uh, but all the reports of the Dene people is that they were actually pretty helpful to prospectors. Okay, like they would help them while they were in the valley. But even the Dene didn't live in this area where the crazy shit went down. Like they didn't live in in Nahani Va- in this stretch of the valley, right? Okay, they like right. they avoided it always. So, do we think that maybe these Naha people that just disappeared when they went to basically the the Dene tried to go and like flank them at their uh-huh. you know, at their camp? Do we think like you know those Naha people that disappeared maybe they moved further in and they could have yeah you know started living in this area maybe they were the ones that were protecting it possibly cutting off heads cutting off heads yeah, yeah. um. Or, I mean, obviously there's a lot more at play that we'll we'll get into a little bit more. But yeah. this, is, this is kind of the thoughts that I, I was having as you were kind of telling the story. Um, yeah. You know, because... Before we, get, before we get super deep in, like, it's it's important to, under, to like, actually really understand the setting. Here. Okay. Like, yeah. it's like... Because even my story, you know, didn't do it justice. Like... This place is like next level beautiful, like I mean, that's how it sounded, right? The, especially as you were describing everything at the start, you know, I, that like, was that was going to be one of my one of the first things, but I, I had to, you know, I had to say what I, yeah. I did at first. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's a very beautiful, like picturesque area, right? Yeah, like it's it's more than picture. Like the geography is literally like nothing you've ever imagined. It's it's insane, like. There are, okay, there are like 10 mile stretches of the Nahani River where there's literally no way to get off of the river. Yeah. Because both sides of the river are just sheer cliff faces that go up thousands of feet. Jesus. And the river, ready for this, areas of the river are 4,000 feet deep. No way. Yes. In a fucking river, really? Yes, four thousand wow. feet deep. See, it's weird. It's like hard to wrap your mind around because it's in a mountain range. Yeah, it's weird to think about depth, but like, this is, it's this area. You can kind of think of it as like Canada's, like Grand Canyon. I yeah, I would say that's right? nuts. It's kind of like that. Yeah, 
So like there are these there are stretches of the river where you have thousand like thousands of feet of sheer rock face on both sides of you and the water you're floating on is thousands of feet deep. Wow. So you're just like floating in the middle of this like void. Yeah. You can't go uh, anywhere. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah. It's it's horrifying. And imagine what kind of crazy shit could live in a oh, in yeah. water that's 4000 feet deep. I mean, right? I mean yeah, you're thinking you know, I mean, yeah, it's granted 4000 feet deep is going to be less than what a mile, right? Sure. But uh, which that's that's not that much. I mean, it's pretty. Dude, significant. a mile of water is it's a lot of fucking water. I mean, that, yeah. you're looking at like ocean depths in some yeah. smaller areas. Yeah, uh, but like if you look at that in like a river view, a river aspect. I mean, you're looking at like an abyssal zone of like a river. Yeah, that's exactly. That's definitely right. insane. So I mean, yeah, it's hard to say. You know, we, we also have freshwater like this or that or whatever else. I'm sure all reside in this massive. Yeah. You know, See, and that's what deep, I'm saying. Deep river. Here. Yeah, that's what I meant when I'm saying like the geography is like you've never imagined. Yeah, like you would never think of a river being like that. No, no, not like, at all. Like yeah. maybe a couple hundred feet. Yeah, that's that's normal. Yeah, but even a couple hundred feet is pretty damn deep, for sure. When it comes to a river, you know. I mean, so. we live in like the flattest place on Earth, so like the deepest, right, deepest, yeah. deepest rivers near us are like what maybe a hundred feet. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be much, right? Yeah. So, like, okay. Virginia Falls is a waterfall in Nahani Valley. Okay. Okay. And it legitimately looks like it's torn from the pages of a fantasy novel. Like, it's insane. Is it more, like, Like, close to, like, Niagara Falls style of a a waterfall? it's, It's twice the height of Niagara Falls. Jesus twice the height and it has and why this, does niagara like, crazy... falls get all the play then like <laughs> right, exactly because you can drive to it from buffalo yeah true um no but it has this like stone spire that like juts out of the center of the top of it that'd be pretty cool okay it looks so the waterfall's like split in half by this huge like chunk of mountain that sticks like you know like a hundred two hundred feet up out off the top of the waterfall it's yeah. incredible. It looks it looks fake. I was gonna say Seriously. it literally sounds like something out of a fantasy novel. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing about it is the hot springs. So like I was gonna say you mentioned like all the like the, the massive geysers and the uh-huh. hot springs and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the hot springs, the importance of them to the lore really can't be overstated. Like they're it's there. Like they're so common throughout the valley that the average temperature of the valley is 30 degrees warmer than surrounding areas. Jesus. Yeah. That's so like you had all these stories, especially like way before when our main story took place. Yeah. In like the early 1800s, you had all these stories of people coming back from the valley talk, describing it like a tropical paradise because I it mean, was, sounds like it's it. so much warmer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, Obviously, most likely that's exaggerated, right? But I like, mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, fully exaggerated, but still, like it sounds like that, something like, straight out of like Journey to the Center of the Earth or something like that. Like, yes, see, 
That, exactly. This is what, doing this research, I had to actively try to avoid falling down the hollow earth rabbit hole. <laughs> because. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not surprised. Like, that's literally what it sounds like, for sure. Yeah, well, you know, might just be a coincidence, might not be, but this place also has an insanely intricate, deep cave system. Of course it does. Of course it does. <laughs> so, like, that's like catnip for hollow earthers. Right? Yeah, and the then, people that are, like, obsessed with hollow earth theory. Didn't you also mention, like, giant wolves and fucking, like, yes. mastodons, too? Yes. Like, yes. We're, like, we're talking, like, prehistoric era. Yeah. So, yeah. like, I mean, yeah. This is basically where the, the area where time stood still. Yeah. And, well, like, there's actually a lot to that. So, like... First, first off, Northwest Territories is like an insane place in yeah. general. Oh, the yeah. whole area. Yeah, so it's like I got some stats for you here. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you want to, if you want to move anywhere there in Canada, you'll literally get paid to live there. Yeah, yeah, because the population is so so like yeah, low, like menace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so extremely. Northwest Territories is 519,700 square miles. Okay. Wow. So about half a million square miles. Okay. And their population is 44,000. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like you literally, if you're, if you're up to it, they will pay you to like live there. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're looking at like above like Yukon Territory, all that shit. Like where, I mean, that, that right there is already harsh enough. Yeah. But like, and now remove the any warmth you get from being on the coast, right? And then you have Northwest Territories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, I did the math, and that gives it a population density of 0. 0.08 people per square mile. Wow. Which means roughly <laughs> one person per eleven and a half square miles. I mean, yeah, you're the only person around for. I, yeah, yeah, that's that's. I, I could I couldn't imagine that. I mean, and I know, like, before we, we got into this, we were talking about living in kind of remote areas and things like that. But, like, yeah, yeah I mean, that would be remote to, yeah. like, the highest degree for sure. Yeah. So, by comparison, Muncie, which is, for viewers, is a city near us. It's like a small college town. Right. right is 27 square miles with a population of 68,000. So there are 28,000, 24,000 more people living in Muncie, Indiana than there are in all of the Northwest Territories. Yeah. And that vast, like, wide, wide area, too. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about half a million square miles compared to Muncie's 27 square miles. That doesn't, does that account (laughs) for, that doesn't account for, like, college students and stuff like that, though, right? I don't know. So I would assume that's going to be an entirely different population. And it's... Yeah, because they're, I mean, the college students are like a transient population. Right. I think they're, exactly. they would, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're looking yeah. at like another 25 to 30 right there. Right. So, yeah, more like double. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. I also like... just wanted to say a ton of my research for this came from the book Legends of the Nahani Valley by Hammerson Peters, and it's super good. It's like an incredible book. I'm worth, gonna like uh, worth taking a look at. Absolutely. Awesome. Like I'm, we're, we'll put a link 
to go buy it in the episode description. Go cool. buy it for yeah, sure. There you go. You heard it here. If you like this episode, go read the book because apparently it's going to be a lot better. Yeah, because I only touched <laughs> on like, I mean, the book has I, like I'm 14. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say, book, I'm yeah. sure this is like just a very like small, small bit of what the book yeah. has to offer too. So We're just yeah. going to be scratching the surface. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, for sure. The book has like 14 chapters and each of the 14 chapters is a, an entirely separate rabbit hole for you to fall down. Like, see, or like you mentioned, they're mile, mile wide sinkholes. Yep. And there's multiples. Yeah. I am still like, I'm still getting this, this like, I'm trying to develop this picture in my head of this area. It's hard. And like, also is, is this like, are dinosaurs here? <laughs> they fucking might be. We man. have giant wolves, fucking mastodons. We have uh-huh. to have some dinosaurs. Like I said, I mean, the this guy, is, this is like journey to the center of the earth. Like it's, it's there. Like apparently this is, this is where we got to go. Look, I, I don't know about dinosaurs, but, it would not shock me if there were some some creatures from the Pliocene period still here. Uh, there has to. I mean, yeah, there has because to be like, something. Like, and we'll get to that. Well, okay. I like when we get to like the supernatural possibilities here. I'm like, there's a whole thing. You got some stuff but in your pocket. You ready to go for? Right, but first I want to talk about like the victims, the headless victims. Yes. Yeah, okay. no, that that was another. I mean, so first of all, it's very off-putting. Um, that yeah. the everybody is found with their heads literally, like fully decapitated. Like, did they find the heads? Were the heads nearby, or were they never found? The heads were never found. Hmm. So somebody's got like some spikes out in their front yard, right. just like warding off everybody else with all these random heads from. Random yeah, victims head collection. that come for to uh, you know get some gold, but yeah, no, yeah. I, that's yeah. I mean, that, like this kind of reminds me of Dyatlov Pass. Yeah, a little bit. You know, it's it's kind of similar in that aspect, just like of them like obviously being attacked by something. Yeah, like I mean, you know, obviously the conditions and things like that. I mean, they're they're going to be slightly treacherous. Yeah. Um, you know, especially given this like fucking giant river and these massive cliffs and things like that. Yeah. We're bound to run into some, some type of, you know, behavior, sure. some type of misfortune or something, but to literally have your head cut off and be fucking chilling by your, like your campsite and shit. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's a little, that's a little bit different. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely different because these guys obviously didn't you know, trip over a branch and disappear their own heads. Right? It isn't like natural. Obviously, this isn't like an accident that would happen in the woods. Right. But I mean, you know, I would I would like to think Dyatlov Pass wasn't either. Agreed. You know, so. But uh, like I said, just slight, slight similarities for sure. Yeah, definitely. Just the like you know, odd, mysterious deaths in the wilderness, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. And it just the, just the, I mean, the, the whole thing about it all and the nature in which they were found, I think is what's really, what's really weird about it. Yeah. 
So, like, the Mounties basically ruled this first, the McLeod brothers. They officially ruled that, like, their theory was that Robert Weir, the guy who paid for them to go up there, Mm -hmm. basically that he that he killed them for their gold Uh, and split, right? Because they, because initially he was nowhere to be found. I was going to say, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem is like, okay. So that was their initial story. And then it was like a year or two later, A year or two later, they found, they found a skeleton, like okay. a mile from, like a mile away from where the other guys were found. Yes, like a okay. mile away from where they were found. And sorry, I was distracted. A cat on the desk. Anyway, um, they look. This is real life. Okay, um, I'm a, I'm fully aware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So. They um, they found a skeleton. It was like less than a mile away from where they found the McLeod brothers. Right, and they assumed that it was Weir, that it was Robert Weir. Right, and it's not really told in like I read a couple reports on it, and like it's not really described how they determined this. I guess they okay. just kind of guessed because it was right there, right. So once they found him, they changed the story. Then their new story was they assumed that the brothers had died in either some kind of accident or starvation. And that happened to be missing their heads. Right. And that their heads were eaten by small animals. Just their heads. I was going to say it. No, I, I, I highly doubt that. Yeah. Well, yeah, me too. So, what about Robert's body? Was was that was he also found? It was headless? not headless. No, it was okay. not headless. Huh. Yeah. Really like I had, doesn't it? I had some trouble finding like medical and police reports on the situation, but the ones that I did find were like they kind of conflicted with each other. So, like one police report said that the vertebrae were in shards which suggested that the heads were ripped off by force. That makes right? sense. Yeah. Yeah. Other reports said that there was head hair found around the the bodies, like on the ground. Like it had, like that suggests that the, the head was on the body for a long time while it decomposed, right? And the hair just falls right. out as it decomposes. Or small animals chipping away and... Right. But... If the small animals were to blame for the heads being gone, why was the third body left with a head? Why was Roberts with a head? And where the hell did the skulls go? Like, I understand that predation happens, and that would explain the flesh and the soft tissue being eaten on the face. Right. Right? But the bones, but like, right. I don't see any small woodland creatures detaching and running off with an entire skull. You know? Those big-ass wolves. Right? <laughs> Exactly. So Big the thing assholes. is, the fourth brother, the youngest brother, Charlie, who he went out on the second trip with him, but didn't go on the first or third. Right. right. 
Okay, so Charlie like adamantly refuted the official ruling. He was his brothers had a ton of experience in the wild, and he didn't see that there was any chance of them not knowing how to feed themselves and dying of starvation. Right. So like, yeah, because that doesn't make this, any sense at all. Agreed. There's this whole side quest in this story of Charlie going to track down Robert Weir because he didn't believe that the third body was was, it was actually him. Yeah. Yeah. So like he run he finds he finds Weir in a bar in Vancouver and gets like his official account of what happened. So he wasn't that wasn't actually him then. I mean reports are are kind of spotty. Right, so, but because if he found him in a random bar or yep. pub, then well, he says he did. That stands to pose some questions, obviously. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he says he did, but the official ruling never changed. Okay. So, I don't know if people just didn't believe him, or if he couldn't come up with any proof, or I don't know. But what he said was that Robert Weird gave him. The, the story that, okay, that while they were in the valley, they were attacked repeatedly by some unknown group of something. Maybe Either people Naha. or, right, maybe the Naha, maybe like some kind of humanoid things. Okay. He never he never identified what it was. He said he didn't know. Right. Um, eventually their supplies were stolen and they had to head back, right? So in order to avoid being tracked, they split up. He went one way, the brothers went the other way, and that was the last he ever saw them. That was his story. Okay. That he gave. Right. All right. Yeah. So the thing about Robert Weir is he had like no experience in the wild, no experience prospecting. That's why he was willing to pay them, like pay for their trip if he could come along because he needed them to guide him. Right. So... The idea of this guy being able to survive where the others hadn't it yeah. literally makes no sense. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's so it it do, that doesn't make any sense at all. Or yeah. even that they would split up. He would be fucked if they split up. I mean, obviously, like the guy doesn't know how to survive out in the wild or doesn't know what he's up against. Whereas the other brothers, they're at least gonna you know have some common sense or at least some knowledge of yeah survival exactly so yeah yeah it's odd and in the finale of this side quest in the culmination he charlie tracks him down again to a farm in saskatchewan and when weir sees him coming he runs into the barn and shoots himself Yeah, and Charlie said that he that the sparks from the gunshot caught the hay in the barn on fire and burned the barn down around him. It's starting to sound a little bit more of a reach there at that point, like, right? But yeah, I mean, like I was buying it when he found him at the at the pub or in whatever, the bar. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It also that sounds like a really convenient way to cover up the fact that maybe he didn't actually ever find him, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe it was a means for him to, like, pin it on something. Yeah. And it makes sense. But But it's still... What? 
doesn't explain why they were headless. I know. That's, yeah. That's the that's thing. That's what's really like, weird about it. The thing is, though, his whole story, the the story that Weir supposedly gave, like, Charlie said that they had never had problems with natives in the past. They usually helped them when they were out in the wild, right? They usually right. could count on the Dene for help, right? So he assumed that Weir was just using the the indigenous peoples as like a scapegoat, right? Like just blame it on them. But like another thing is the brothers were found with a significant amount of gold. Like there was gold there piled up in the camp. So if Weir killed them, what a fucking waste. For the, if Weir killed them for their gold, why didn't he take it? Why wouldn't it? he take it? Exactly. <laughs> Also, why would he cut their fucking heads off if all he wanted was their gold? Yeah, they, it doesn't add up at all. Like, nothing about it. And I'm now not buying the story of him actually even ever being found. Right. Like, I'm, I'm second-guessing that now. Um, Same. I think the skeleton was probably him. Probably. But it doesn't. it also doesn't explain why he didn't have his head cut off and everybody else did. Yeah. Like... It's it's I mean, just weird. Like, what was the purpose of decapitating them right. and literally running off with their heads because they weren't found? Yeah, you know. So yeah, there's something else, something else at play for sure. I mean the the thing is, neither theory, Charlie's or the Mounties, neither theory can be confirmed, and neither theory explains why people continued to die in the same way. True. In the future, you yeah. know? Because this kept happening, right? Right. Like, yeah, you had said, you had said it, it happened numerous other times and people that went out there and everything, so... Yeah. The second guy, Martin Jorgensen, he, his cabin burned down, right? And he was found with a bucket and a rifle surrounded by shell casings. So, like... Maybe it was assumed to defend himself or something? It was assumed that maybe his cabin caught on fire and he was because he was found between the cabin and the creek with the bucket and the rifle. Right. So they they assumed that his cabin had caught fire and he was rushing back and forth to the creek with water in the bucket to try and put the fire out. Right. And when he was attacked. Yeah. But my but my thing with that is. Who in an emergency like that, like imagine you have to run back and forth with buckets of water to put your house out, to put a fire out in your house. Who's carrying a rifle while they're doing that? Hey, you know, better to come prepared than not, right? That seems like a lot of shit to juggle. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it seems like a little a little bit more than, you know, you can really kind of get by with the carrier. Right. But maybe exactly. he's got a strap to his back or something, and it's just kind of like he didn't even think about it. He's I mean, I guess it could quick, be a strap right? to his back. I yeah. didn't think about it. I was thinking like he's running down to the river with the he's rifle holding in one, one hand, hand. The right? Yeah, <laughs> and then like he puts the rifle up between his neck and his shoulder like a '90s telephone while he's dunking the yeah. bucket I, in the water. And maybe, <laughs> but I would like <laughs> to think he had some form of strap or something sure. on it. You know, like, you're probably yeah, you're probably right. That would make that would make more sense. I I would think at least. 
I mean, and the shell casings being around him definitely suggests that he was shooting at whatever was attacking him. Right. Yeah. Right. So, like, the thing about it, though, is, and this kind of, like, this kind of reminds me of the um, Ventame Hill thing. It's, the Mounties didn't visit the scene of his death until 1916, which was two years after the body was initially discovered. Yeah, I mean, what good is that going to do? Right. Like, I'm not sure what... It might have been weather that kept them off the mountain or, right. you know, but, just I mean, delay after think delay. About that, think about that, though. That's going to be what's going to affect the scene. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, like, two years later, nothing about that area is going to be the same. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... I, no, I you're feel, right. I think it's a cover-up. I mean, the delay would obviously make it hard to investigate, right? Right. Yeah. So, like, and the thing is, they showed up two years later, and they go, like, hmm, weird. And then they dropped the case, for lack of evidence. Hmm. No fucking doubt. <laughs> yeah, right? Weird how when we wait two years to go and see a body that's out in the elements, there's less to investigate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't take much to, first of all, like, cause someone to, like, wither away and... You know, I, and also, like, think of any tracks or anything like that. Yep. As the seasons have progressed and things like that, they cover them up. They, uh, you know, like, new th- new life is going to form. I mean, there's lots of things that can really affect this. Yeah, I and mean... And then any wildlife in the area, like, anything like that, especially over a two-year span. Yeah. It's going to be impossible. I mean, good luck tracking footprints a week later, let alone exactly. two years later. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it'd be physically impossible for them to be able to track anything at that point. So, yeah, I, I, that's bullshit. Yeah, it's pretty that's crazy. Where, like I said, it's obviously a cover up. They know they more they know more than they're letting on. It could be, but yeah. Back to it. You had said that there were roughly over a hundred people that went missing um, in this area too, right? So, yeah, over now, like a fifty-year span. Right. Now, is that 100 people with, like, their heads cut off, found? No. Or is that just that literally disappeared? That's people who vanished without a trace. Okay. All right. That's what I thought. I was just making yeah. sure. Yeah. No, so, there weren't a, a 100 headless corpses found. That would I be mean, that fucking would, nuts. That would suggest a whole fucking lot, right? Yeah. I mean, they might be in there somewhere headless. I don't know. But... Maybe. Yeah. 100 people in 50 years went missing in this this area. Yeah. It's pretty I, crazy. I want to say the Naha came back. The Naha like moved this area. Like, I mean, they they already sounded like they were pretty no fucks given, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and maybe they're very territorial. Yeah. See, that's uh, what I was thinking too. But like, the weather, I forget who it was, but I was um, listening to an interview with a um like a, an ethnobiologist about okay. who was talking about it. And he was saying that because the, the weather patterns and the, the land itself there is so unpredictable and constantly shifting yeah. any, any people who lived there would have to come and go, right? Hmm. Like they would have to be mobile. They couldn't adapt. Like it, it, the weather changes so quickly. And so like, unpredictably that he at least as an expert on the subject assumed that anything that 
any people that would live there stay there right they would have to yeah and it seems to me kind of odd that a people who were transient would be super protective over a place yeah you know what i mean i mean yeah that's true but it doesn't it also we have the naha people that literally disappeared without a trace mm-hmm. fires everything's still going like literally their entire camp left basically untouched right yeah. you know like i mean fully fully active and yet nobody is there you know fully fully completely gone that's where like that's where i think like maybe they just relocated maybe they're in the hills maybe they're in the side of the mountain maybe they're in all these weird caves and shit like sure you know um that's the only thing i could think that could even explain any of that but now i know you know you mentioned in the 50s um you know reports of of course of course people vanishing uh-huh. Um, UFOs, Sasquatch, yep. missing planes, like things like that. So, I mean, maybe there's something else. Yeah. I mean, okay. So before we get into the supernatural possibilities, because I mean, obviously we're getting there, right? I, I, yeah, I think so. But there are a couple points that should be noted. So, okay. The vast majority of these supernatural theories come from like come straight from the Dene legends. Right? So here's the thing about this area. The height of the mountains and the depth of the valley are so severe that it was actually protected from experiencing the fourth ice age, the most recent ice age. Okay. So it's it's some of the oldest unaffected land on earth. Right. Like in that period, it's like 8,000 to 80,000 years ago was the last ice age. Okay. So like the cooling period wreaked havoc on, on wildlife all over North America. Like it Mm -hmm. decimated populations of animals. And while species were being killed off by like radical climate shifts and formation of ice shelves, the Nahani Valley was untouched by all that. So like that really, in my mind, increases the potential that like that some, that things from that period could have survived. Maybe even like a breeding population. What we were talking about before. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, that's, I mean, that's a huge thing. Missing an entire ice age. That ice age is responsible for the extermination of a lot of species. Yeah. So, like, if it if an area didn't experience that at all, who's to say that a breeding population of any one of those creatures w- couldn't have survived? Right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And that's where we get into those mastodons and shit. Like, that's yeah. something, again, I can't get over. Um. That's where I wonder. So the main one, the main one that's speculated is called the Amphicena Day, which is a bear dog. Okay. Ah, okay. Yeah. So it's a prehistoric species. I'm just going to read you the description. Yeah, yeah, go for it. It's a prehistoric species of carnivorous mammals related to both the bear family and the dog family. 
bear dogs are appropriately hypothesized to have looked like genetic hybrids of bears and dogs. So, like, imagine a wolf, but way, way stockier, way heavier, like a bear. Right? Um, so more of like a, uh, oh, fuck, what is that breed of dog? Um, keep going. I'll think of it. I'll, okay. I'll eventually think of it. <laughs> I think you're you're th- you're thinking about the Tibetan Mastiff. Is that no, what you're thinking not the about? Mastiff. No. Um, uh, Sorry, I'll yeah, let you think about keep it. Good. Keep going. Okay. So the the Amphicinidae, the bear dog, officially died off during the Miocene period, but the valley was protected from a lot of geological phenomenon, right? Okay. So, like, if that's the case, it isn't crazy to think that there's a chance that they could have survived, right? And maybe right. even thrived in the valley. Yeah. And these were massive creatures. Like massive. Think about like think about like a Kodiak bear sized wolf. Wow. Right. That that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So those are like those are a big part of the Dene legends is that those are out there just prowling the valley looking for shit to eat. Okay. So th- that's well, that, that. So yeah. That could be pretty damn, uh, yeah, pretty damn frightening. Yeah. See, and one of the, like, one of the main theories on, um, Martin Jorgensen, because the, the Mounties dropped the case immediately. Right. But like, his peers and the Dene both had theories about what happened okay. to him. And his the main the main theory that came from other prospectors, friends of his, was a bear attack. Right? Because all the... <clears throat> okay, so there's a thing that I didn't know until I was doing research for this. Fire doesn't actually scare bears away. It actually draws them in. So, like, they're yeah, attracted okay. to the warmth. That. They're, like, attracted to the warmth of the fire, right? Yeah. So, like, um, Jorgensen's peers thought maybe he his cabin accidentally caught fire, right? And the warmth of the, the cabin burning down drew a bear in, right? And while he's running back and forth with his bucket, he gets attacked by a bear. And that's what he's taking shots at. Yeah. Is okay. this bear, right? But if it could be a bear, it could just as easily be this bear dog thing. Right? Yeah. I mean, if they're there, you could assume that, you know, the warmth would draw them in the same way it would a bear. Right? Why go ahead first? I mean, that's another thing about bears is they don't mostly don't like eating people. So, like. Right. They attack. That's yeah. it. Right. Yeah. So maybe the head just comes off while he's attacking. Right. Oops. Pop goes your head. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're a, you know, 3,000 pound creature made of muscle and sinew, sometimes pop goes their head. Right. That's like probably an easy accident. Exactly. Man. Pop goes your head. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, that's 
Poor taste, Ryan. Poor taste. <laughs> I'm an asshole. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, man. Anyhow. So, and another theory that went around was that one of Jorgensen's rivals found him and killed him and was just trying to like mimic the way the McClouds died a couple of years before. Okay. Which, you know, that's... That's fair. I mean, that, that's, that's a It definitely could happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Dene had a pretty... They actually kind of weave the, the, the Martin Jorgensen story into some of their legends, right? It's like become a legend in the Dene people. Oh, okay. So their, their legend says that a Nahani man, which, okay, here's the thing. There's a, a third tribe, okay? Because we've been talking about the Dene who live around right. the valley, right? And we've talked and about the Naha. The and, Naha, right. yeah, who died off. But the Dene refer to the people who come and go in the like in the upper um in the upper elevations of the mountains. There's like scattered tribes who who come and go and they hunt in the in the upper elevations. Mm-hmm. They call those the Nahani. Just like the valley. Right? Okay. So their legend is that a Nahani man came upon Jorgensen's cabin. Okay. And it was empty aside from a stockpile of moose meat. Okay. okay. So like he was out doing whatever and his stash of meat was in the cabin. And he basically just went to town on the meat. He just had himself a little feast, right? And he seasoned it with what he thought was salt, but was actually crystalline strychnine, which is what trappers use to kill animals that they trapped. It's poison, right? Mm. And the dude dies in the cabin. And when Jorgensen comes back and finds him dead in his cabin, he just kind of chucks the body. Okay. Okay. And then, like, so their legend says that the, the, the Nahani took revenge on him for the death, right? For for the guy dying. That's and, fair. And yeah. disrespecting the body. And they cut his head off and burned his shit down. Okay. Right? So that's what the Den- that was the Dene theory. It does explain how the fire didn't catch the forest around it. Because that was a weird thing about the fires, both of them. Yeah. Was that the cabins burned all the way down, but none of the trees around it caught fire. Like, the fire didn't spread into the forest. So if someone intentionally set the fire, then ostensibly they would be there to control it. Right? Right, of course. Right. And any, you know, native living in the forest wouldn't want to catch the forest on fire. So Yeah. They would, like, stick around to control the blaze. I mean, especially the Nahani people, they go there to hunt and stuff right. like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that that was their theory. But all that okay. to say, like, this bear dog. I like the bear dog. This bear dog, it actually is in line with one of the theories for the Jorgensen case, which is, like, an animal being drawn in by the fire and right. and, yeah. and attacking him while he's trying to put it out. Yeah, I just, I mean that that could definitely be a possibility, right? I, sure, and that doesn't seem far fetched whatsoever. Yeah, 
other than this bear dog. But I mean, if this is something that's like literally as a legend or, you know, whatever else, right? Regardless. Um, you know, but I still don't, I, I, the, the fact, the idea to go head first, and I'm going to continue to say it just like that. Okay. Going head first literally makes no sense. Like, I mean, yeah, we have an attack. We have an attack. I mean, if it's a bear dog, maybe like, why would you go head first when you could chomp away at the bits of all like limbs and shit that are much easier first of all um i mean some predators it depends because there are two types of predators right there are predators who eat and then and the prey dies because it's being eaten and there are predators who kill before they eat true right so if this is a predator who kills before it eats maybe maybe just just chomp down on the head to kill it and then i don't i don't know because the body wasn't eaten either so yeah. that's what's so, so weird about it. Right. And that's where none of this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Literally, like, none of those theories or none of the, like, the stories and stuff add up. And that's yeah. where I'm stuck. See, that's pro- where I'm still stuck at that point. Proponents of the bear theory, they think, they say that bears don't like eating people. So, like, maybe the bear felt threatened and killed him, but then just split without eating him. But is but that the same for the... everybody else too? <laughs> right, exactly. And also, where's the fucking head? I mean, I could see it like biting right. the head, maybe crushing the skull to kill the person. And be, you know, a few feet, few yards away, or something like that. Right. Right. You know, like right. Maybe with a gnarly bite out of it. Like who knows? Whatever. Sure. But like, yeah, it doesn't. It just doesn't add up. Yeah, it does. It doesn't make sense to me. So. There are more theories, right? So more theories. The next one is basically Sasquatch. Okay, right. So yeah. let's get into this. So there, this region's version of the Sasquatch, or something that I I think of it as that. Would it it's, be more of like a Yeti in this case? I mean, maybe, maybe okay. it's a maybe it's a cousin to both, but they okay. call it. Yeah. They call it the Nakani. Okay. So close to the Nahani. Right. Right. So the the Nakani is I mean it's basically described the way that all Sasquatch are described, right? So there are some some pretty cool quotes though. Like okay, Philip Godsell wrote a book called The Curse of Dead Man's Valley. And this is a cool okay. quote that that he wrote about them, right? This is how he described them. That he had nowhere seen the slightest Indian sign bore out <clears throat> bore out the redskin reports that the country was taboo and recalled their superstitions that it was haunted by a race of prehistoric troglodytes, or Nakanis as they called them, with repulsive gargoyle-like faces who lived in caves cut out from the living rock. Creatures reported to be twice the size of ordinary humans, who never missed a chance to carry off unwary hunters or stray squaws in their powerful gorilla-like arms. End quote. So, right, which is very, yeah, very, very Bigfoot-esque. Yeah. Um, so, also, could it just be literally a, a, a caves people? Like, um, like cave peoples-ish? Um, because, like again, this area didn't experience... Right. 
didn't experience the last ice age. Yeah, which would have taken out like this whole. Well, there's you know, there's actually a big debate about whether or not Neanderthals crossed the Bering Strait with Homo sapiens or not. So okay. some people believe that they did, right? So, okay, if you picture like a map of picture a map of North America, right, with Alaska in the mm-hmm. top left, and Alaska, you know, the Bering Land Bridge used to connect Alaska to Russia, right? And that's how they crossed. That's how Homo sapiens crossed into North America. Okay. So this was like during the during the during the last ice age. So they crossed the Bering Land Bridge into Alaska, and as North America was split into two different ice shelves. Okay. So as those ice shelves started to melt, they started to separate. And the line of of the melt basically happened. It was a straight line from Alaska into like modern day North Dakota. So it's like a, a line straight through Canada. Right. Into like the Midwest. Like, okay. Yeah. So like as that melted and the ice shelves spread apart, that's when people, when Homo sapiens started migrating into North and then eventually Central and South America. Right. right. But some people think that Neanderthals came across the bridge with them. At the, like during the same time period. Yeah. So Neanderthals being a little hardier than Homo sapiens were could of definitely course. have been more likely to brave the, the outer edges of that melt. Right. So like, I mean, that's, that's what I would think. Yeah. Yeah. So the same can be said of like Gigantopithecus, which is possibly the, the origin of Sasquatch, right? It was a creature that actually existed. That was like, it was a hominid that, um, coexisted with human beings at a certain point. And it like, okay. looks like a fucking Sasquatch. Yeah. I mean, basically. So if those, if Gigantopithecus crossed the bridge, the land bridge as well, then they could have just as easily made their way to a place like Nahani Valley. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, mean that, that be, I feel like that'd be prime, you know, prime ideal territory, right? Or yeah. Area. Definitely. Especially if you decided to like brave the ice shelf, right? And then you go mm-hmm. for a while and then all of a sudden you find this untouched valley that's like, you know, normal temperatures and it reminds you of the melt that you were in before. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is a place untouched by the ice age. So finding this Valley, I can see sticking around, you know? Yeah. So that, that's like, that's what makes me lean toward the Sasquatch stuff. That, or that's what is really cool to me about the Sasquatch story. Right. It it makes a lot of sense to me. Like yeah no I mean especially describing it like that yeah definitely makes makes a lot of sense yeah and I mean I feel like this would be like I said prime area for them to basically form like a habitat at that point and yeah for sure so we have we have this as as another possibility but so and then that's saying that these. Sasquatch-esque 
uh, peoples. Right. The Nakani. Things. Right. The Nakani. Um, are they just going back to territorial? Like, are they just extremely territorial? Or are they very aggressive? Like, you know, I mean, who's to say? I mean, that's the thing right. with Sasquatch, right? Is there are very different versions that you hear exactly. accounts of. When you think yeah. of like the when you think of like the Pacific Northwest Bigfoot, you think of like, you know, shy, gentle people like trade gifts with them and shit in the forest, right? Like <laughs> Right. I mean for real, but then or when like you Harry and the Hendersons. Exactly. I mean damn near. They like play like knock knock back and forth and shit in the woods. And like the most aggressive thing you really hear is like, oh, they threw rocks. Right? Right. But like when you go to like Florida and start talking about like the skunk ape, that it's like fucking violent and like brutal and there are like attacks and yeah. shit, right? So like who's to say which one? Right? Yeah, which that's, which that's one this true. is. I mean especially in this area, this very untouched Yeah. You know, very untouched area, like I mean, yeah. Who's to say that they're not going to try and preserve it or keep it as is or, yeah, you know, not let like the outside man come in, you know, like affected or whatever else. I mean, you know, it, at this point, it's just like grasping your straws to try and try and understand it. But sure. It's just speculation. Yeah. yeah. But like, you know, it would like be it, safe to say sense. it'd be safe to say that if a, a population of Sasquatch, if the Nakani do exist in this valley, that their that their interaction with human beings has been limited, right? Because human beings being in this area has been limited, right? Of course, it's a very yeah. small amount, right? As opposed to like a skunk ape living in a swamp ten miles outside, you know, Tallahassee. Like, it's yeah, it's very different. Yeah, there's also a thing that I think is really cool with like, because with all wildlife, the further north they live the bigger they are so like when you look at like white-tailed deer that live in georgia they're like 40 50 pounds right they're small right that same exact species living in central canada is like a 160 pound animal i mean yeah i think it comes with the territory right exactly literally yeah yeah exactly yeah it like to deal with a harsher climate they get bigger they more meat on their bones right thicker coats all that and it's just it, and then it comes back to that adapting adapting yep. to your surroundings right and so yep so i i like the idea of that same thing applying to something like a sasquatch right yeah like maybe it is the same species in florida and here in the nahani valley right but maybe one is you know nine and a half feet tall and weighs, you know, 2,500 pounds. Yeah. And then the one in Florida is, you know, it's more like six and a half feet tall and, you know, 300, 400 pounds. Yeah. But that same mean, species, right? Living in two different climates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I, I just think that that's a cool sure. thought. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, yeah. I think of the Yeti being, like, fucking enormous. Right. Uh, that's, like, yeah. The, the Himalayan so Yeti. I think of that being like the biggest Sasquatch, right? Because he's living in these like snow-capped reaches. Icy tundras. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I could definitely see Yeti being massive. Yeah. So that's always my immediate thought 
like you know go to when it comes to a yeti and that's why i was kind of curious i mean because this area is you know it's very beautiful very like nature rich very again picturesque like oh yeah beyond that like uh you know and so it's the point of sounding like something that we've never seen or could never imagine because it's so untouched so like you know, it's thrived through all these years, not being a part of, you know, that that Ice Age and all that other, like, you know, so, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be significantly different. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, people people talk about people who visit it, like, the area, not just the, not the specific area where shit always seems to go wrong, but, like, yeah. just the Nahani National Park, which is huge, but it's, like, Eleven and a half thousand square miles, or meters, um, or no, it's miles. Anyway, it's a, a huge area of the Northwest Territories. Is Nahani National Park now? So people who visit the area even think well, they even discuss like this weird feeling that they get just being there, right? Like was, they go into the valley ask. and it just yeah. like it's described as feeling off. And heavy, okay. like kind of the way people describe being in like a haunted house, right? Yeah, yeah. Just feeling you have this weird kind of irked feeling that just doesn't go away. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And add to that the shit that like the wind whistling through the mountain peaks that you hear at night, mm-hmm. like sounds like wailing. Say, I was gonna say you described it as like a wailing sound. Yeah, yeah. Which that's some scary shit. Imagine I mean, yeah. sleeping out there in the middle and you just hear like, it literally sounds like some, like I watched a video where you could hear it and like, it literally sounds like someone screaming at the top of their lungs in like, in the distance. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'd pass on that. It's now. So is this area now much more frequented then? Now? Okay. So this technical this section of the river valley, most of it is shut off to the public, which is another, okay. that's another check in the something's fucked up here column, yeah. right? And a lot of the cave systems are too. They're like closed off with iron gates. Wow. The cave systems. So like. They're either keeping something out or keeping something in. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you did it. Um. There's, um, yeah, it's, it's weird because like, you'll see in the pamphlets too, like that, like at the end of every like pleasant little, pleasant little, you know, detailing of uh, activities you can do in the area. There's like all caps, bold, like admittance to any cave system has to be approved by blah, blah, blah. Do not enter. (laughs) Like, wow. Yeah. It's weird. It's definitely weird. So you want to talk UFOs? Um, yeah, let's do it. Okay, I think we're, I think we're at that point because it's a, that's another big theory here. Yeah, is UFOs. I mean, that's, it's another one that could describe or at least explain some of the strange shit. Yeah, for sure. So since about 1950. About 150 of... Okay, so Canada gets about 1,000 reported UFO sightings per year for the entire country. Okay. Okay. About 1,000. And this... 
this and comes from MUFON. This is sightings reported to MUFON. Okay. So, of those 1,000 a year, since 1950, 150 of them every year, approximately 150 of the 1,000 have come from the Nahani region and the, the, the Mackenzie Mountains. Yeah. So, like... Which, I mean, out of 1,000, that's a pretty significant yeah. amount. To yeah. come out of one specific area, for sure. Yeah, 15% of the country's UFO sightings happen here. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So I have three brief accounts for you here. Okay. All right. And I know I'm you love it. I know you love you some UFOs, so I, yeah, I want... I've, I've been waiting for, for this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wanted to tackle I've tried to get you. into it a couple times now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so in May of 1967, Thomas Mahoney reported seeing two flying saucers near Nahani Butte, which is a small town on the outskirts of the National Park. Okay. He claimed that one of the aircraft hovered only 45 meters away from him, landed, and as he approached, emitted a beam of light that knocked him to the ground as it lifted off. Mahoney said that he became ill in the following weeks, and a photograph of his chest eight months later showed burn marks in a pattern, in like a circle pattern of dots on his chest. Okay. Yep. I like it. So that's like one it. encounter, right? That's a pretty weird one. Yeah. I like I, it too. I mean, so did it, I'm, I'm just trying to picture. So he was below this beam of light as, as it was taking off then. So, okay. The way he described it, he sees the two flying saucers. One of them lands, right? Right. And he goes for it. Mm-hmm. Badass move, right? <laughs> Fucking mean, run toward the UFO. And I, I, yeah. as it takes off, it emits this beam of light that blasts him. Right? As it's shooting back in. It could be... Yes. Could be like, like exhaust or... or right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could be anything. Or they went down there to blast him. Maybe they did. Right? Who knows? But he had this weird circular pattern of dots on his chest, like, months later. Which is... That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. I'd keep that, for sure. I'd get it, like, tattooed. I, I, dude, same. I'd get it tattooed over. I would fucking... I would... I would. Yeah, I would, I'd rep that hard. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so during the same year as the Mahoney sighting, people reported that the night skies over the southern end of the Mackenzie Mountains were glowing with four lights that flashed off and on before crashing into the mountainside. Eyewitnesses claimed that they watched a large orange glowing object sink behind the peaks. So the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they, thinking that a plane had crashed, they organized a rescue effort, but were unable to find any objects. They found nothing, right? Of course. Divers even searched several of the rivers and tributaries, but also came up empty. And since no planes were reported missing, the case was classified as a UFO by the Canadian government. Yep. They were camouflaged, obviously. Or they just took off before, you know, anyone came for them. They were able to take off, right? right. That's possible. Mm -hmm. I would assume that if the lights were blinking on and off, that they could also just be off. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's a weird thing to think of, but like... (laughs) 
You'd think that if you've mastered interstellar travel, you could also like maybe get a little stealth mode going. Right. Well, right. I mean, there's there's also reports of UFOs or um, some of the, these types of aerial, uh, you know, whatever phenomenon. Because uh, I don't want to I don't want to say more UFOs because it's things that we actually have access to. Right. UAPs. But exactly. But they do have a stealth mode. Yeah. Like almost like an invisible mode. Oh yeah, we've had like the stealth bomber since what the the I think the early eighties. It might have been earlier than that. Right in the sixties so, when they about, first developed it. Think about that as these go down behind this like mountain range or this this area, right? And then vanish. And they go, yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, you're right. So they could have just sunk down behind the mountains, kicked on stealth mode, and got the fuck out of there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Complete, I, yeah. I would say. I mean, that that's. I'd, I'd be willing to bet money on it. Yeah, that's probably more likely. So the third account is from 1989. Okay. okay. Several people in Fort Laird, which is the fort from the story. That's the fort the McLeod brothers lived in. Like that's All right. when they took off to go explore the valley. So right. yeah. Several people in 1989 in Fort Laird reported being awoken in the middle of the night by a noise that sounded similar to an electric generator. Witnesses also reported seeing an intense blue light shining outside their windows. Two days later, a perfect circle about 20 meters in diameter was found outside the home of one of the witnesses. The RCMP were called to investigate, but the source of the lights and the strange markings remains unknown. So yeah, UFO. Yeah. Fucking hundred percent UFO. One hundred percent. Yeah. Exactly. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, and I'm assuming well the area that they have this big circle. Was it like a burned area or was it like just like perfectly like chopped or you know, like it was burned. I mean it's also it's I was gonna say yeah. probably burned. Burned ninety nine percent of the time it's burned. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it was crop circle style. I think it was kind of like a lift off pattern, right? I mean, even most That's crop circles of. are burned as well. Yeah, a lot of them are. Like, but a lot of them so, are the like the grass is smashed down perfectly flat yeah, in the low parts. True. Those are the weirdest ones to me. Because it's yeah. yeah. It looks so intentional. Like the burn ones feel like especially like this where it's just a circle. You know? Mm-hmm. That that feels like maybe something landed and then took off and the propulsion yep. left the scorch mark, right? Yeah. Like yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's a, that's what I'd be willing to bet as well. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, I dig, I dig that. So let's let's tie that in with this this area. Yeah. So we have we have possible, well, we have possible UFOs in the area, possible aliens. So do we have? See, I don't like to think of aliens as aggressive or mean or. I bet you. Yeah, don't. I don't know. I, I don't like to think that though. I like to think them as my best friends, you know. Yeah, just a, a good, good group of people. <laughs> just those <laughs> aliens, they're good people. Yeah, um, you know, they're they're they're. I'm sure they're fine. But I mean, if you if you ascribe to the like the side of ufology where they've like detailed all these different races. Yeah. Of aliens, right? Maybe there's like 200 right. plus or so. Some, mm-hmm. I mean, they they consider some of them dangerous and some of them 
friendlies. Oh yeah, I mean, right? You you have like your mantids and stuff like that that are going to be extremely aggressive, sure, extremely dangerous. Shapeshifters that are the same, okay. You know, um, and you know, I mean, there's there's a bunch that are very like normal, like whatever people, basically. So are but like, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of races that are very dangerous for sure. So are greys considered like middle of the road? Yeah, they're like here yeah, to I mean, experiment most, and stuff. Not really. Most gray, most gray encounters are like. They, they're very neutral they're very like you help me i help you basically right and when you they know, do do weird shit they tend to erase the person's memory right right i mean yeah that's, that's yeah. yeah okay which is good you know sure. but i would also i would like to remember <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know well if depending yeah, yeah i don't on know what they do on the table right if it was just like an afterward like we erase what happened but we're gonna say hey ryan what's up sure we'll say hey guys how you doing? Have a quick convo before you drop you off. My butthole kind of hurts. I don't <laughs> know what happened. Yeah. I feel um, like my entire chest cavity weird... might have been cracked open exactly. in the last couple hours. I have this weird scar now that seems to be going away rapidly. What's going on? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, but yeah, you're right. You're right. There there are a lot of very dangerous uh, species or yeah. versions, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to say because I mean, a lot of those, you know, it don't, it's not very common for them to be around. Like, I mean, they're documented, but it's like, I mean, more so we have like more so most known are going to be the great. Sure. Yeah. And that's going to be your more common everyday alien. Right. You know, so, but it's, it's more unheard of to have like these more dangerous, but of course, again, we have had. Um, you know, a lot of like the mantid peoples and, you know, like shapeshifters and of course reptilians and things like that. And I'd I mean, say if there's one thing we've learned about Nahani Valley tonight, it's that, you know, uncommon things happen here. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. Maybe, maybe there was some crazy alien race that came down looking for heads. Right. I mean, could you see like one of these, like, I mean, this is more your area than mine. The UFO stuff, right? But could you see like, could you see like a, a race like the Mantids, like dropping in and just like cutting a dude's head off? Literally just taking heads yeah. and going. I yeah, I mean yeah, I think that's definitely possible. Um, you know, as much as as much as I hate the concept because again, I like to think of yeah, you like them as friendlies. I do, yeah. I do, but I know that. It's not always that way, you know, and that's something I have to remind myself. But still, yeah, I think that's definitely possible. And that could also be something that was used as maybe a maybe a means for uh, for studies for them or whatever else. Like, or maybe it's just like, let's fuck with these people and take some souvenirs. Right. Like, you know, who's to say? I don't know. You don't know. Like, you know, I don't think anybody knows. Sure. But, you know, again, there are so many different races and species of aliens that... You know, it, it's hard to say because, especially in this area, very untouched, very like old area that's like withstood, you know, like some crazy events. I mean, it's hard to say what you know, what or who went there. Sure. So I would say it's definitely possible, for sure. And I could see an area like this attracting attention from from yeah. from oh, an yeah. alien race, without right? a doubt, mm-hmm. because it's such an so anomaly. I mean, 
And what better place to study or get, you know, information from than this very untouched, yeah, like vast, beautiful area that literally should not exist. Exactly. I mean, it's like a valley-sized time capsule. Is basically what this place is. Like, right. Yeah. And who's to say since the beginning of time they haven't been doing that as well? It was actually the it was this valley was actually the third ever established UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it was UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. So okay, it was it was established as a UNESCO World Heritage Site right after Stonehenge. Jesus. So that's how like significant this place is culturally and historically. Right. I was going to say especially historically, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's an awesome place. I mean, you can I wouldn't want to go into, you know, Dead Men Valley, the actual place where the shit went down, right? Yeah. Because to be completely honest, I'm I'm just I'm not confident I would leave with my head. Like, I mean, I would, I'd say that's a pretty fair, uh, you know, fair thing to worry yeah, about. I'm, right? I'm just superstitious like that, I but, guess. But like, you can go there and like go, you can go to the national park and there are like rapids you can raft on and you can go hiking and like spend the day or spend yeah. the week camping. And like, it is like a super beautiful place. And there are people snapping Instagram shots of themselves staring at, you know, standing pretty damn close to where all this stuff happened to this day. So, wow. but like, like I said, there are big chunks of the park that are cut off to visitors and you could say that's for See, safety, but from which side That's for safety, of course, but from what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, other than maybe rugged terrain. Sure. Like, you know, like massive cliffs, deep rivers, like, yeah, you know, that's, that's fair. So there, but go ahead. Yeah. Like, I was just going to say, I mean, but what else? Yeah. What else? Is There's obviously something more. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels that way. And especially because... to like block off like caves and shit too. Yeah. There are like, because this place has like some of the craziest ice caves on earth. Like you're talking like thousands of meters deep ice caves. Right. Right. And they, they're locked off with iron fences. Like you just can't go in them, and sure that yeah. that could be, it could be for safety, of course. But like there are a lot of people yeah, who think who theorize that national parks are are sectioned off not just to protect the ecosystem in that area, but that these are like these are important or dangerous points on Earth, right? Yeah, which. Lines up with the fact that so many fucking people go missing in national parks every year. I mean, yeah. Something like 22% of all missing people's cases happen in national parks. In national parks? Yeah. I'm I'm not surprised. I mean, you have so many vast natural parks and things that, I mean, just go on for miles and miles and miles. Like, yeah. Yeah, it'd be easy to get lost and... You know... Yeah, I mean, so basically just die off. Like the fact that big chunks of the park are locked off definitely probably have like anyone who's into like the hollow earth stuff is like 
you know, their spidey senses tingling mm-hmm. hearing that. Because, <laughs> like, I maybe they've blocked off, you know, some passageway. Yeah, right? I, I, I think it's possible. I, I go back and forth in that, you know. We should do a, a fucking whole series on Hollow Earth. I am so into that, actually. Yeah. That'd be fucking cool as shit. Yeah. Because the concept of it, fantastic. And it's extremely, to me, it's very, not necessarily believable, but it's very, like, something that I would like to dive more into. Yeah. Like, I'd love to learn more about. Like It definitely piques my interest. It's very intriguing, for sure. Right. Look, I personally collect copies of Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's my favorite book. I have twenty one. It's fantastic. I have twenty one separate copies of Journey to the Center of the Jesus. Earth. Yeah, and just like different prints and like different mm-hmm. different um, different releases of it. Yeah, I any I've, first editions? I wish. No, I do have a second. Yeah, that, I do have a second run. Impossible to get. Yeah. I have a second run of it, but yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, my wife got it for me for my birthday two years ago actually a second run of it nice but um yeah so i'm definitely intrigued by hollow earth theory that's like you know i've been reading about it since i was a kid reading jules verne yeah right like it's it's something because i i also and and i'm not trying to stray too far away from our subject here but like i i also believe that somewhere on on this planet dinosaurs do still exist you think so i think so maybe it's not on this planet maybe it's in this planet maybe it's in it <laughs> right exactly yeah yeah no i 100 percent. i fully believe it you know there's a, at least to a degree there's you know there's like the stories of it are insane like that it it goes so far down that there are skies like 10 times higher than our sky right like the distance between the the ground in hollow earth is is 10 times greater than from Earth's surface to the stratosphere, right? That's insane. And there are, like, full yeah. oceans. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm on board. I would love to I would love to dive into that. Cool. Like, I think, yeah, we should do it. Excellent. I think that's a plan, then. Sweet. So, awesome. okay, so let, let's hear your final, your final word on this. What do you think? Ah, oh, man. What theory makes the most sense to I'm, you? Because I know there's a lot I'm there. I'm going back and forth. I'm going back and forth. Um, I really I like the idea of the Sasquatch, uh, of this uh, Nakani. Yeah. You know, I, I like that. I just don't see... I don't see the drive behind it. Okay. The motivation. You know, which... Exactly. I don't, I don't see, like, you know... I don't see the motive. I don't see, like... What would drive them to be so just go for the heads, basically. It's just, it's still the heads are the thing. Like the heads are the most fucking weirdest part about this whole thing. Like people going missing, like all this other shit. That's pretty damn normal. Okay, so before you go on, let me try to clear that up for you because while I was researching I found an article called Cursed Treasure of Dead Man's Valley, right? And it was in, just for, you know, due diligence, it was in the 1968 issue of Saga Magazine. Okay. All right. Written by Brad Williams. Not the comedian. For what it's worth. Okay, so 
And he, in the article, described the Nakani as hairy demons who stand as high as a Kodiak bear, are as swift as a bird in flight, and kill all things they reach by cutting off their heads. Their skin is so tough that a bullet will not penetrate it, and cutting it with a knife is more difficult than cutting stone. So, what was this written for? It was a magazine article about the... It was called The Cursed Treasure of Dead Man's Valley. So he was basically... So this is after the fact. Yeah. He's just running down the... This is... What happened. Right. This is somebody adding fuel to the fire. Maybe. Sticking with the Nakani story. I mean, I... Because... That that was basically... That was basically... um, him describing the way the Nakani had been described to him by the Dene people. Okay. I mean, if this is Dene lore, you know, specifically like that they cut focusing off their on right, yeah, you know, these these Nakani Nakani people or beings, cryptids, whatever they are. Um, you know, if it is in their lore, if it's like a legend or so. That it's always been a thing where these Nakani are an actual like an actual thing, and they do go straight for the heads, and then this has been something that's been passed down, sure. passed down, whatever stories stories are as they are. Um, you know, and this guy ends up posting or printing this, you know, this quote or whatever. Um, you know, because he had heard it as yeah. stated by the Dene, then that adds more more credence to it. It adds more like you know makes it makes it a little bit more credible, credible, sure, um, or credible. Sorry, um, you know. But I don't know. I, I'm still I'm I'm in the air, like I'm on the fence still. Like it's it's kind of up in the air. Like what I what I really think. Like that adds a little bit more. I'll give you that. I mean, you're right. You it know? definitely Again, could if, be yellow journalism, right? It could be like he knows that the guys got their heads cut off. So why not just add in this little tag that they add cut more heads to it. off? And then he, right. And then right. he is this source that now is forever said, you know, states this, right. that adds, you know, that much more to the story. Right. Yep. And we are talking so 1960s magazine journalism. Right. right? Of so course. Could I definitely mean, have been Everything was fully embellished. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm at a loss. Um, I think something, something has happened out there. Um, that, I mean, I think it's just impossible to really explain unless again, that is fully true provided by the Dene. Like I said, if it is part of their, like their lore, like folklore, whatever it is, right. Um, that, that would add a lot more credibility to it. And then I would I would probably sway more in that direction. Um, I also like the idea of aliens, UFOs, sure, not being such a big thing, you know, of course, in that area. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe again, just uh, some some race that uh, was up to no good. Um, just <laughs> I, needed I, some I human heads. I don't know. I'm I'm yeah. I I think right now I'm I'm honestly I'm torn. Um, I think it's, it's extremely, it's extremely intriguing and I like the concept and everything. And I think it's, I love like the mysteriousness of it all. Like the mystery is awesome. Yeah. And that's like, just as much as I love like the diet left past story. Sure. 
like it's you know that like the mystery of it all i think adds that much more to it and makes it that much more exciting yeah definitely and i think that's like more so of what i've gotten out of it as far as like forming a solid opinion as to what i think it could be i don't i don't think i can yeah to be honest that's fair that's fair see the thing is i didn't even get to all of the possibilities like in my research like okay. there's a whole thing about the like the lore of the Dene people with spirits right like yeah. they have this okay. whole like like a super deep mythology with um like concerning spirits right okay. so like they have like a hierarchy of spirits that haunt that supposedly haunt the valley mm. right that makes sense yeah and like i would love to investigate that like i would I think that's a, a super cool. I'm putting that on a list for like a possible bonus episode in the future to just do like a quick, like 45 minute deep dive into mm-hmm. the, their hierarchy of spirits. I know? mean, cause that's also another thing. Like, you know, you have these like ancient tribes, uh, it, whatever else, like that will always have like these crazy, I mean, like some of the crazy, like either just outlooks or, spirits deities sure. like anything else like that they worship or believe in and that are you gotta be pretty very far-fetched yeah i just um, i just didn't know, to a degree of course yeah. but i just didn't have i didn't have time to do it ju- do it justice so i like, mean it yeah at that point there's probably gonna be way more that we can yeah. we can dive into for sure and also the wahila the giant white wolf that's another that's another theory of this valley it's another piece of the lore of the valley like see there's so much that was, here that was gonna be that was gonna be the other thing i was gonna kind of touch on as far as like as far as what i thought like maybe this it was the wolf you know sure maybe it was these wolves but i don't <laughs> but again it doesn't explain why the bodies were untouched yeah it is weird so i mean the only thing at that point that has any possible explanation is going to be just provided by that that quote that from from that author, yeah, um, you know, stating that they go for they go for the heads, right? Which was of course written, but again, f- was written sixty years after it happened. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So who's to say that that wasn't just fucking bullshit? Yeah, you know, definitely. And that's why, like, I would love to to add that as like, you know, yeah, yeah now now you're kind of swaying me. No, like, I mean. Granted, again, if we could like die deep dive into like years and years and years before that, yeah, seeing any type of you know information from the Dene and they like state that that is a thing or like there's something that was published way before right. this dude posted whatever he posted, right? Yeah, you know, like that would I think that would make it more credible and that would make it more believable for sure, but. Yeah, like I said, it's it's really hard. I to me, I I think it's it's something I would love to I would love to dig in more, and especially if you do end up coming, you know, wanting to do like a deep dive more into kind of like spiritual end or whatever yeah. else, and kind of like a follow up, uh, which I I think would definitely help out in this case. Yeah, because till we till we do so, I think I'm still going to remain on the fence. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to have a 100 percent like formed uh, opinion or idea of what it could possibly be. Yeah, so my take is very similar to yours. I really don't know what the fuck. I don't know what it is. I feel like yeah. it's I like to think of this as like a like a a Jurassic World. 
right? Like not technically Jurassic, but I like to think of this as like a time capsuled world where maybe multiple, if not all of these things are happening. You know what I mean? Right. Like I said, it might be the area that literally time stood still. Right. Like I like to think of this like crazy, this crazy landscape where Nakani and fucking bear dogs and like all these things are mastodons, mastodons, right? (laughs) And like all these things are coexisting. And maybe that's why there's so many UFO sightings because this is the only place on on the earth where they can see these. Maybe UFOs are coming down and abducting Nakani. You know what I mean? To examine them. Yeah, that's that's possible. I mean, why wouldn't they? Sure. So that's kind of how I like to think about it. But if I had to put my finger on one thing, I'm just going to pick bear dogs because I think they're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the idea of a bear dog sounds pretty cool. Um, And as I was thinking about it earlier, um, I was thinking of Chow's was the first Ah, one. I was thinking Chow's and then like. I mean, think of like a Newfoundland. Yeah, a Newfoundland is literally the size of a fucking bear. Well, if you think about the like, the one that I suggested when we first brought it up, the Tibetan Mastiff has the super long hair, but is the size yeah, of a Mastiff. True. Yeah, it basically looks like a Super Chow. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of dogs that do have very close right. similarities to bears. bear-like qualities. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I honestly I like to think about all these things coexisting in this crazy ass valley. I, I I agree. I think I think that's that's probably the most probable. Um not to mention the yeah, I mean not to mention the insane aquatic species that probably live in these insanely deep mm-hmm. rivers and like yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, and it's 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 gonna be. I mean, I'm sure there's probably things that we've never, never uncovered or have found or anything that probably reside deep within the waters as well. Oh, yeah, like so. I mean, you know, I I think of the area as like, you know, again, various journey to the center of the earth style, like very close to that like concept, very you know, very untouched, very like lush and you know everything else. Yeah, like, I think. Given that, all these things could definitely exist. You know, they could definitely exist. I mean, just with the sheer fact that it hasn't endured everything else that the rest of the world has. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, who's to say that it's not it's not all a thing? That it's not all accurate? Like, it's not, all, you know, not all there. Yeah, definitely. Um, Like I said, the only thing that stands out to me that I can't explain is just... The people, the heads, like, you yeah, know. it's weird. But maybe the Nakani really do have, you know, like, uh, need for heads. I will say, go ahead first. I will say, I've been no lifing this story for the last week and a half, and I've read a lot of lore. Yeah, of Dene lore, and that piece from that from that um, magazine article is the only specific mention I ever the found. The only time it's ever been mentioned. Of them taking that's the heads. what I figured. Yeah. But, I mean... So I figured that's just... But there are accounts you know, of them, of like, things, brutally right. attacking, you know, stragglers and women and children yeah. even. But I would figure they would have more, like, 
scratch marks, bite sure. marks, like, you know, like well, also, the rest of the body would be more effective. We'll also take into account that all except for, okay, so Jorgensen's body was found partially decomposed, but all the rest of them were skeletons by the time they were found. True. Yeah, true, true. true. So you wouldn't see the damage to the bodies. Unless it was to the bone. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But I could definitely see some mangled body parts. Yep. At least some mangled limbs that would be broken. For sure. Arms, fingers. I don't know. If I ever hands, get attacked. Legs, feet. Like, if I ever get attacked by a Sasquatch, he better rip a fucking arm off. Like, that's what I expect from a Sasquatch, right? <laughs> like. He, does, he, he doesn't. You're just saying, pussy. Exactly. <laughs> like. Come back and fight me like a How man. How are you going to leave me here with both arms? Two arms and a boatload True. of disappointment. I mean, that'd be a fucking phenomenal story. <laughs> exactly. No, but yeah, I'm, I have this like journey, journey to the center of the earth vision in my head of this place. It's like, I don't know. It's like half that half, like middle earth. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. True. It's so crazy. It's such an insane place. Yeah, it's like now I really want to look up everything I possibly can on it because I want to like I mean like I was I was thinking like what if like what if you could just do a flyover? But then like I took into account like all the planes know, that went all down. The disappearance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, well, maybe not. <laughs> and you're probably not allowed. It's probably there's probably like a no fly rule over the area. Yeah, too. over some of it, it is. But a lot of the places mm-hmm. you can only get there by bush plane. So you do have planes coming in and out. But there are certain areas of the park that are restricted completely. Yeah. Even for flyers, I, I would definitely. I could imagine. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh like I said. I definitely I would like to hear some more of the more theories and things like that around it. So yeah, I think we should retouch on it for yeah, sure. So maybe, maybe we'll put together a bonus episode or something on, on at least on the, the Dene, you know, spiritual hierarchy, I think would make a really interesting yeah. talk. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that could be, uh, just an episode that we do or a Patreon only episode. Sure. Yeah. Once we, cool. once we, you know, launch a Patreon, have it going. We'll yeah. get there guys. Promise. Yes, that'll be coming very soon. Yeah, right. I'm. Uh, I I dig it. I dig it a lot, though. It's super cool. Like I said, now I, I'm I'm invested. I'm, I'm going to be reading a lot. Dude, I'm excited for. I'm very curious. I'm excited for our Instagram this week because I get to post some of the most insanely gorgeous landscape shots I've ever seen in my life. Just wait. Just I'm wait until you see them. for them, that. Dude. Yep. They're. Yeah, I'm stoked. Yeah, it's incredible. Definitely. If you're Good listening, shit. go to the Instagram and look at these pictures. Like, go now and look because it's insane. If you haven't followed us on Twitter and Instagram, make sure to do Absolutely. so. Absolutely. And Facebook, just because our Facebook is kind of lacking. We haven't really. I think know, Facebook in general is kind of lacking. We spend, but we spend a lot more time on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. You can find us anywhere, so make sure to do so. Yep. You know, show us some love. And that concludes. Episode 21, The Headless Men of the Nahani River Valley. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week. 
and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at Campfire T-O-T-S-A-U on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time. I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and and trust trust in the unknown. unknown.